0: And so those were the kinds of things that were happening to me in that situation where I just felt so disadvantaged mm-hmm. and working with these children that were also so disadvantaged. As a new teacher, I was teaching 38 kids and over the course of the year, I had somewhere around 45 students total for the year. I had trouble getting to know them. I had five or six special education students in my classroom. I had children pulled from my classroom and deported back to Mexico. And, you know, it was really really difficult experience to go through not just as a new teacher but as a person who like truly cares about people so my why really does center around people i want to make life easier for anyone i can come across and i didn't feel like i could do that in that situation so that's how i found speech pathology and in a lot of ways i feel morally recovered from the school district but i still witness the troubles and i still hear about the troubles
1: Hello, hello, everyone, E hola, hola. Welcome to the Pediatric Speech Sister Show. I'm your sis, Melanie White-Evans. I'm a bilingual pediatric speech-language pathologist and cultural compatibility consultant here to learn with you and discuss more ways we can uplift culturally diverse communities in our professions and day-to-day lives. This podcast is for you. If you're ready to address the disparities in the United States healthcare and academic systems, And are looking for more ways you can be culturally competent in your careers. Tune in weekly as I introduce mind-shifting topics that will support service-based professionals and students alike on our cultural competency journeys. Let's get into today's episode. So before we get into today's episode, I just discovered something that's like a LinkedIn but exclusive for speech pathologists. Lyricare is a free website where you can stay up to date on recent news in the industry, share your own interesting articles, join interest groups, and connect with fellow colleagues. I was super easy to sign up for Lyricare, and you can sign up too at lyricare.com. That's L-I-R-I-C-A-R-E dot com. I'll include the link in the show notes for you too. All right, y'all, let's get into the episode. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Pediatric Speech Sister Live. We have here Rebecca K. Von Deering, CCC SLP. I will let them introduce themselves, but just a quick introduction a speech language pathologist working in the greater Puget. Puget Sound. Thank you so much, I'm sorry. Puget Sound region of Seattle, Washington. Before speech pathology, they worked as an elementary school teacher in Las Vegas and in San Diego. Since 2015, they've specialized in gender affirming care, hence the name gender affirming voice. And they provide services through an anti-racist, neurodiversity affirming and linguistic justice framework. So we definitely need them here in the field. As clinical lead for a major healthcare institution, they strive to align patient care delivery needs with corporate leadership initiatives through advocacy work and interdisciplinary training. So the reason why I have them here with us today, we've been going back and forth on Instagram a bit. And you had to remind me how this even came up, but I know that you sent me an article on moral injury. You've sent me a podcast. (laughs) Oh, how did that even come up? Can you
0: remind me? Well, uh, Amanda Pericles, ex-Speechy, um, posted something to her stories once, and it was an Ezra Klein show, and was, I think it was called the, the Case Against Loving Your Job, and in that, they introduced the concept of moral injury of healthcare, and I was feeling very more morally injured at work at that point in my life, and so I started to kind of dive into that topic, and, and the more I learned about it, the more I started to feel better, <laughs> actually. And so so that's what really kind of started to lead me down the path of learning about moral injury of healthcare. Um, The more that I've learned about it, the more that I've come to understand that it's actually uh, something that can really impact really somebody in any sort of helping profession. So there are people who are physical therapists who experience moral injury, speech pathologists, obviously, which is why I'm here today. There are public defenders and judges who experience moral injury. And for some people, moral injury can be so severe that it can unfortunately lead to what we have now, which are really high rates of suicide in the, in the physician world, in the judge world. Um, so it's, it's really something that's extremely concerning. Um, and, it's, and it's really something that can impact people who go into a profession where they have a strong why. And so I know that you always like to ask about what people's why is. (laughs) (laughs) Questions for me? Wait, wait. wait. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry, I led you right into.
1: (laughs) Well, one thing I am very happy that you brought up suicides because we don't know exactly if speech pathologists are committing suicide right now, but I do know that a lot of us are leaving the field, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you know more than anybody as well working alongside speech pathologists we all look so burnt out and it's really sad because like you said we're in a very helping profession we go in with great intentions with big hearts and then it's like we get crushed so i'm very excited to talk about this because one thing especially that's been coming to my mind the past couple of weeks actually is suicide Mm -hmm. not just black youth suicide but also black transgender suicide and then uh, students. That's been coming up for me lately. So I'm like, okay, this must be something that we need to talk about. Cause I know with myself, I really battle with depression and the battle has been real lately. It's been real. So, so that I'm like trying to change my diet. I'm trying to do so much just to get better really. So I'm very excited. So we could at least shine light on this topic. Like you said, you said that you felt better. So I hope that we can do the same for others. Uh, so tell us your why, why did you
0: join the profession? Well, so it's really interesting because it's really what made me realize, like, my goodness, my why in a lot of ways comes from moral injury, actually. So uh, when I started out, I started out as an elementary school teacher, fourth grade teacher in uh, kind of close to downtown Las Vegas. I was in a Title I school. Uh, I think, you know, the majority of our school was African-American or some sort of Latin A population. we were coming up from Mexico, uh, and a lot of the things that I saw in that setting were were really distressing, you know, the being in the middle of the city, you wouldn't anticipate that necessarily there would be farms right behind your school. But that was the kind of thing that was, um, we were in such a at at risk neighborhood that we actually had farms that were just right behind our school. Mm-hmm. And um, the children that I was working with were coming in and they didn't have proper dental care so after lunch, kids would come in and they would just sit with their head on the desk 25, 30 minutes, and they would have to send them to the nurse to go rinse their mouth out with warm salt water to try to make the pain go away. And we're coming in malnourished and um, had some children throwing up on the floor because of what they ate for breakfast. And I mean, it was just really, really distressing. And in that situation, we also had a, um, you know, a union situation and a school district situation where it was really difficult to get rid of bad teachers. I was working next to a grade teacher who said something extremely racist to me in front of the the students of her class. And I reported her to the principal and he said, you know, Rebecca, my hands are tied. There's nothing I can do about this. Um, She's in the district. It would have to lie to get her moved to a different school. And so those were the kinds of things that were happening to me in that situation where I just felt so disadvantaged Mm -hmm. and working with these children that were also so disadvantaged As a new teacher, I was teaching 38 kids. And over the course of the year, I had somewhere around 45 students total for the year. I had trouble getting to know them. I had five or six special education students in my classroom. I had children pulled from my classroom and deported back to Mexico. And, you know, it was a really really difficult experience to go through, not just as a new teacher, but as a person who, like, truly cares about people. So my why really does center around people. I want to make life easier for anyone I can come across. And I didn't feel like I could do that in that situation. So that's how I found speech pathology. And in a lot of ways, I feel morally recovered from the school district, but I still witness the troubles and I still hear about the troubles. So my why centers around people and coming together in community and trying to just make the world a better place.
1: Well, that does bring me to my question then is, how did you go from doing the schools to now
0: doing speech pathology? I just got lucky. Walking down the hallway one day and I was doing the disciplinary thing, you know, no touching the walls, keep your arms folded, you know, oh, you're being quiet, you know, you can be at the front of the line and just moving kids around. And I saw the speech teacher skipping down the hallway and I was like, you look so happy. (laughs) What do you do? (laughs) (laughs) And so that's kind of (laughs) how... That's kind of how I found it. Uh, But yeah, so then uh, while I was still teaching, I entered grad school. When I moved to San Diego and I was a special education teacher, I taught elder moderate first through third graders. Then I worked as a director of education for Sylvan Learning Center. And that was a really, that was a whole other experience where I had this dentist say to her child, if you don't behave, I'm going to send you to public school. And I was like, man, that is terrible. (laughs) Not that that's a threat. That's awesome. <laughs> but I got in the medical field just by luck. I just, you know, just cold called places because my university, we had to find our own internship placement. So I just started cold calling and it was the first place I landed and I did my internships there. I did my CF there and then I got hired on. So is- I've been there since 08.
1: <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much for being here and, you know, just transitioning from the school setting to even just being here now and getting into gender affirming care because there's not a lot of us doing that at all. And this is a little bit off topic, but as I do more research, I'm finding that a lot of the ignorance is also what's causing suicides in the LGBT community. Uh, Off topic, I'll have to bring you back on for another conversation on that, but let's get into moral injury. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about how moral injury came into your view? What sparked your interest in researching the problem further?
0: The biggest thing that, you know, and it's the reason that I reached out to you is that it's not, maybe it's not burnout. Maybe that's not actually what it is. And that's when I started to really dig into it and started to really think about this idea that we come into the professions that we choose because we know what's right and we choose what's right. But what happens when the structures that we are placed within don't allow us to do what we know is right. What can happen is over, just like microaggressions, um, moral injury is death by a thousand cuts. And what happens is, is we have these moments throughout our day and throughout our careers that really start to tear us down and make us feel like we just can't do what we know is right. And we have to make decisions throughout the day to either abandon what we know is right or choose for it, but abandon ourselves. So in situations at work where I have an inpatient unit, sometimes I'll have 100% productivity day where I'm literally scheduled back to back and I'll get an inpatient swallow referral that comes in and I have to decide, am I going to give up my lunch to go upstairs and to evaluate this person who needs a swallow study done? At our hospital, we have a policy that if a patient has not had their swallow study, they'll be NPO until they get it. So it really is a decision that like, do I eat or do they eat? And, and it's a really um, daunting thing to happen. And it, it doesn't happen often, thankfully. Um, that's just an example of the way that that can happen. And as I've learned more and more about moral injury, I've been able to talk to people like my manager, who's also said, I feel morally injured. And she said, I know how to help this team adapt to this change, but I don't feel like I have the tools anymore that I used to have to help you adapt to the change. She would frequently say, I know what to do, but I can't give it to you. That's what's really started to draw me in. Burnout is actually a diagnosable condition. It's a condition that is diagnosed onto a person. It's an ICD-11 burnout. I'm going to just read the definition because I think it's helpful here. But burnout is defined by the ICD-11 as a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. It's characterized by three dimensions, feeling like your energy depleted or exhausted, increased mental distance from your job and feelings of negativity and cynicism related to your job, and then reduced professional efficacy and so what they say here is that burnout is really a term that should only be used in the occupational setting. But the problem with that definition is all I hear is problems within the person. Mm-hmm. I hear that you're having energy depletion. I hear that you're feeling exhausted, that you're having a mental distance from your work. I don't feel mentally distanced from my work. I feel, frankly, too close to my work. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so that, that yeah. <laughs> I mean, my poor wife, the amount of, you know... <laughs> calls I take and mentorship things I do because I'm not distant from what I'm doing. And Mm -hmm. so if if it's a diagnosable condition and they have strategies to deal with burnout and those strategies are things like yoga and meditation and exercise, but are those the cure for the disease that I'm suffering? And I don't have burnout, but what can happen is when I'm morally injured enough times or what's known as a transgression, then then I become morally injured. And when that becomes too severe, then I become burned out. Oh,
1: wow. So the moral injury is what leads up to the burnout, to us becoming mentally distant and cynical in our
0: careers and so forth. That's right. So if you go and you address the burnout too soon, or you're trying to address the burnout, treating the wrong symptoms. And ultimately, um, it's helpful here to know what actual true definition of moral injury is. Mm -hmm. Moral injury is a chronic, emotional, psychological harm that's caused when an individual perpetrates, fails to prevent, or bears witness to, or learns about acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs. And so, you know, we all go into this job because of our why. Mm -hmm. And... That why has been frameworked by ASHA, and ASHA has frameworked it in the Code of Ethics. So what I started to do when I started to reach this topic for us was I actually looked into moral injury of education, moral injury of healthcare, and then started to kind of pick through the Code of Ethics. You know, and some of the things that the Code of Ethics says is that we need to put paramount first, our patients. They are first to work in situations and under leadership that that's not their goal. Mm-hmm. Their goal actually is they do need to keep us functioning as a healthcare organization. They need to keep us afloat financially. They need to get the reimbursements in, and so they are driven by a different moral compass than what we're driven by. Mm-hmm. And so our moral compasses are at odds with each other.
1: So I love how you brought that up, because what that's bringing up for me is I think about how I left the school setting for a little bit. Uh, So my why is I went into the schools because, or I even joined the field, because I wanted to address the academic achievement gap from the lens of speech pathology. So I go into the schools, did it for my externships, went into it for my CF year. I was in one of the largest districts in Texas, in Houston. And... I learned very quickly that they did not care. They didn't give a dang, Rebecca, if I even implemented therapy, to be honest with you. It was really all about the documentation. I could have just handed them worksheets, say, have at it, and been on my phone the whole time. And there really wouldn't have been much of a difference. And so for me, I ended up staying in the schools for another year, but I left because if my why, if my passion, if I feel like my purpose to even being here, to going through graduate school, getting the degree and doing all the research I've done up to this point, is to change the academic system. I would always tell people that I can't do it from within because it's a very well oiled machine. I always actually sadly compared it to um, CEO officers who work in the prisons to change the system in the prison, but then they get there and they end up becoming part of the problem. A uh, moral injury was real because I didn't necessarily, I felt burnt out maybe it eventually actually just led to burnout yeah. but it was more so I don't even find a purpose in this anymore I don't even find it, why am I doing this if I'm not helping anyone I feel like I'm hurting more than helping I can tell by your face that you have a point to that <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I wanted to go and tell you what the symptoms of moral injury are oh yes and... <laughs> so, please go ahead go ahead well, what was interesting is moral injury actually it entered the healthcare world in 2018, but it was around in the 1990s when moral injury really started to come about. And it uh, was first defined in the military population. And they were finding that uh, that these soldiers were coming back from Vietnam War and they were getting all this treatment for PTSD, but that there's the symptoms that they were actually experiencing uh, had some traits of PTSD, but there were much broader problems. And so... Typically in the military context, the moral injury is usually a pretty egregious, one large egregious event. And so it's really common for soldiers who have experienced moral injury to experience guilt and shame, but it's a lot more common for healthcare and for others uh, to experience anxiety, grief, depression, demoralization, existential dread, <clears throat> decreased compassion, loss of trust in self and others normalizing behaviors that are problematic and unethical decisions that are problematic, burnout, and then abandonment of profession. So those are the the really common symptoms that we'll see, a little bit less of guilt and shame. And the guilt and shame typically will be more of like that that you have actually done it. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of the risk factors for being a person who gets morally injured. Now, basically to be morally injured, you could be the victim of moral injury, you could be the perpetrator of moral injury, or you could be the witness to moral injury. So there's a lot of situations where even just as a patient, I experienced moral injury, or as a student, I experienced moral injury, but some of the risk factors uh, based on the research I did are to be female. Females had much higher rates of moral injury than males. In that study, they actually included cis and trans women in a group. To be an itinerant staff person, so that would be a speech pathologist or a school psych. Um, Depending on the percentage of students of color and students receiving free and reduced meals is Mm -hmm. a third risk factor. And then the one that I added, not from this study, but that I added was to work in a SNP. And I can share some information about that with you too. The reason that itinerant staff, I think about, you know, I saw gender and I was like, oh my goodness, 92% female. (laughs) <laughs> and what are we? <laughs> what speech pathology? <laughs> <laughs> to bring in itinerant staff because they, and they did the study on in the educational setting. It wasn't the teachers necessarily that were having the most moral injury because they had the most control over their space, right? They could control the room. They could control what books were on the bookshelf. today is the start of trans week of awareness. I'm sorry. I think I just messed up the name of the title, but, and today is the first day of uh, the week of trans awareness and taking care of book bands and their bands, bathroom bands and things like that. That's, that's today's mission. (laughs) So it's a good day to talk about it, but you've got more control over your classroom, but the itinerant staff is a lot more likely to go from classroom to classroom and to really see the differences between staff members, between, uh, you know, You see the gifted program. You see the not gifted program. (laughs) The quality of the room is different. Mm -hmm. You have to travel between schools. So you might be placed in a much more affluent school and then have to go to a less advantaged school. And so you can see these huge differences in budget and sources. And then that's where that students of color comes in. You know, there was a study that in 2014, African-American students were suspended from school at rates three times higher than white students. You know, and we think about the amount of times our kids are just being pulled from us and we, we lose them for things like truancy mm. and they're suspended for truancy. And it's like, well, that defeats the purpose. <laughs> and then these are these lower income schools, these title one schools. We have a lot more when we talk about the trauma-informed care. Um, we talk about trauma. There are things called adverse childhood events, ACEs. And um, we see a lot more ACEs regarding poverty, trauma, racism. And, um, you know, those are the reasons that we get morally injured, because we see it happening right in front of us. And we know it's happening. And God willing, most of us are upset by it.
1: <sighs> Rebecca, you just hit my spirit because, see- <laughs> God willing, most of us are upset about it. Uh, One thing that is also coming to mind, for example, especially if you are working in these Title I schools, but whether you are or not, it's happening to these children, right? The ACEs. And a lot of teachers, a lot of speech pathologists or itinerant personnel, like you said, we're so burnt out that we don't even want to care. Or maybe we're so morally injured that it's almost like subconsciously we're setting up a boundary. Yeah. Like, I got to go home to my to my wife and kids. I don't want to take this home with me. So I kind of just have to look at it for what it is. That's also the self blame. Well, I chose to work in a Title I school. So I should have known that this is something I was going to have to deal with, which honestly, sadly, the focus should also be on the kid and getting the kids what they need. Mm-hmm. But we're so overworked and underpaid that we have to think about our families at the end of the day. So I am also very happy that you brought that up.
0: Well, and I'm happy you brought that up because things that morally injure us are the the structures of society, basically. So these are the social determinants of health. And the person that I've learned the majority of moral injury from is Dr. Wendy Dean. She's a psychiatrist. And Dr. Wendy Dean, I think she's the one who coined, instead of calling it social determinants of health, that we should call them moral determinants of health. Mm. And when I looked into what are the social determinants of health, we've got education, access, and quality. Healthcare access and quality, neighborhood and built environment, social and community context, and then economic stability. So what I did was I peeled through Asha's survey data. So Asha's survey, they did a um, I might get, I'm probably going to get the years wrong, but it was a 20, uh, 2004 to 2021 school survey, and then they did another longitudinal healthcare survey, and. When I think about the moral determinants of health, and we take education access and quality, ASHA found that 79% of SLPs report large amounts of paperwork. 58% report high workload and caseload sizes. 51% report volume of meetings as the greatest professional challenges. They report disproportionate service provision to BIPOC versus white students disciplinary practices that remove children from the classrooms and then choosing who gets the services. So, and which services to prioritize if you have such a large caseload and you see this kid that like, maybe they get a 12th percentile and you're like, but they need help, but they don't have anything lower than a 12th percentile and you can't get them onto your caseload. That's a structure that is morally injuring you because you see somebody who needs help and you can't give it to them. Morgan and Farkas found that 74% of white fourth grade children with reading difficulties were receiving special education services, but only 44% of black children and 43% of Hispanic children were receiving services.
1: Say say those figures one more time.
0: Yeah. Those numbers were 74% of white fourth graders were receiving special education services. Okay. While only 44% of black students and 43% of Hispanic students.
1: Why do you think that is?
0: Well, you know, you said we choose Title I schools. And I actually think I remember being placed in a Title I school. I probably would have chosen it. But the newest teachers, the newest itinerant staff, we tend to get placed in those schools. So we already have less experience, less resources. Uh, if teachers are already spending their money on buying books and resources and materials, and I'm a brand new professional at the lowest income bracket for the union, I have a lot less resources to be able to spend on my students. I mean, it's it's structural racism, obviously. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I gotta <laughs> know what <laughs> Well, the reason why we I I get another conversation for another day, but I just think about the over and under identification of. Mm-hmm brown kids and special education but Mm -hmm. again there's there's
0: still more research i want to do on that but it's definitely yeah they do talk about that in that study so if you want to read about that they actually do talk about the over and the under identification so the over over identification in black students is for social emotional problems being incorrectly diagnosed as having a behavior problem but not for the academic supports they're under diagnosed for that
1: I can't tell you how many children have been, has a caseload for autism or ED, rather than just giving them academic support or, hey, maybe this child just has ADHD. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe this child is going through ACES and maybe he Mm -hmm. just needs counseling. I have stories about that.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the healthcare setting, something like 10% of outpatient clinicians report being asked to provide services that they're underqualified for or under experienced with. Um, and then reason that I ended up adding SNF population to the risk factor sheet is that uh, 21% of speech pathologists who work in SNF report being forced to provide treatment or evaluations that are clinically inappropriate. 19% are expected to discharge inappropriately. And so when, when we are juxtaposed in our, in our work setting against this code of ethics that says, you know, rule L principle, one rule L says individuals who hold these shall use independent and evidence-based clinical judgment, keeping paramount, the best interests of those being served clinical judgment. But we don't get to do that clinical judgment if 20% of SNF providers Are being told what to do and when to discharge.
1: Rebecca, you know, (laughs) I'm at a loss for words because you know one thing that just came to me. This is why people are leaving, and this is why people don't want to do the sniffs. CF here, I've had friends come to me and saying, "I'm actually leaving the field. I'm leaving the field. I can't do this. I'm going to go into marketing or something, something completely, completely different." So, thank you for bringing this up. Uh, one question I have for you is when have you personally been morally injured? I know that you, when we were talking on Instagram, you told me one specific example, maybe during COVID. Uh, what comes to mind when you think of moral injury for you and how have you navigated it?
0: Step by a million cuts, <laughs> but I have, I have had some large ones. I've had some large injuries. One was, the, one was deciding between my line and the swallow study, and I did choose the swallow study. But I also had the, the physician actually yell at me on the phone and say, you have a patient right here who needs you. Right. And I had to hang up and just go upstairs there. could not do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the social determinants of health is economic stability. Just last week, I was talking to a stroke patient uh, who had been the director of a really large facility here in the Puget Sound region, and he had mentioned going to the food bank. And I was like, what do you, you go into the food bank? And he said, yeah, I, uh, you know, the, the stroke wiped out my finances. And so just witnessing medical bankruptcy, that's a moral injury. So that's me, me witnessing that. And then we think about insurance caps. And I knew a little boy who drowned and survived. Um, He was multiply impaired by it. And he had a a 30 or 60 rehab cap for the year. Mm. And so we had to decide if it was gonna be speech, OT or physical therapy. And so he would have to go three weeks between each service Instead of just being able to get what he needed. Mm -hmm. Or his family would have to choose to be medically bankrupt by this event. So those were two big ones. But I see it all the time. So how do you overcome it? I do what I can. I write letters for them when I can. Uh, I try to pull as many resources as I can. I try to collaborate. Um, but, you know, collaboration is another one of those things that was marked really high as a risk factor um, in the ASHA surveys, especially in the school setting, lack of ability to collaborate. Oh, um, But, you know, I tried to just pull as many resources as I can. And luckily I'm in a, in a healthcare system that has uh, complex case management um, and that also has community resource specialists. So I refer to community resource specialists where I can and try to get people connected to the services that are available. Uh, A lot of the things that you have to do to fix moral injury are systemic. They're much larger than us. That's where that difference between burnout and moral injury occurs, is that it's not about what we can do, but it's being able to at least see that we're stuck in a framework. Mm -hmm. In the 1980s, there was a concept called uh, street-level bureaucrats. And that's what we are. We're street-level bureaucrats. What we are is agents of the government. And the government says what our reimbursement rates are, Mm -hmm. what percentile of student standard score needs to be at, if we're going to see them for services. And so we have to serve as agents of the government. So no wonder if our government isn't working, that we're feeling injured by it.
1: I like how you say that, because I think that the biggest shocker for us, especially when we're entering the field, and sadly, as we're going through the motions in the field, is, wait a second, I'm not serving these families so much that I'm actually just serving the system that I actually hate I actually hate the system that's why I'm here so I can fight against it and unbeknownst to me I'm actually serving them so yeah the irony in that um I don't want to keep you here forever we can talk about it and I definitely want to have you on more and more Is there anything else you would like to say specifically about moral injury? Because one thing I also wanna ask you is what changes you would think we can implement into the field individually as speech pathologists, but also in the field at large to change this problem?
0: So there have been some studies about individual help. So things that you can do just to, if you are feeling morally injured, you can go, there are therapeutic approaches that are really helpful Are actual actual approaches that are helpful where a a clinician incorporates spiritual practice into their treatment. And then there are pastoral. And uh, that is actually going and working with clergy. Uh, Because when your moral compass is injured, and especially if you live within a religious framework, uh, really does require a spiritual and a pastoral approach. Because a lot of recovery from moral injury really comes from being able to acknowledge what you did or what you saw, being able to acknowledge that um, shame is okay, that's what tells us what our why is. And that's gives us purpose. Uh, you know, a lot of, when moral injury is most severe, it's when leadership gives us a sense that they care, they listen, but they don't do anything about it. And so like Dr. Wendy Dean, she actually has Fixed Moral Injury of Healthcare as her organization, and she gets brought into healthcare systems. And the first thing she always says to them, will you actually take any steps based on the things that we talk about with your employees? Because if you will not, you will cause more harm than good by having me here. I will not be here if you cannot commit to actionable changes. And um, you know, we have to continue to push ASHA because when we think about leadership, ASHA is our leadership. And I was listening to Dr. Humbert on your podcast and she was talking about how our Asha dollars were getting spent on whether or not she could call herself a swallowologist, and she was receiving all this email and correspondence from people who were saying, "I reported this manager and this leadership for false reimbursement. They didn't do anything about that. Taking my dollars and working on calling somebody a swallowologist. That was we were all victims of that moral injury if we saw it happening. But for leadership." They need to value and support their clinicians. And that, that means not telling us to go cry in our car,
1: which we've done. Means...
0: <laughs> I can't even count. I'm so sad. It means not telling us to skip the Starbucks mm. because that's not, what's breaking us. Valuing and supporting and protecting the clinician and the patient relationship, creating community. And that means really reinforcing the need to collaborate and to give systems for us, to spend time together, and to even consider doing some job shadowing. And they shadow us and we shadow them so that we can see the challenges they're facing because they're morally injured too. Mm. Theirs looks different, but it's, you know, it's that as well. I honestly I could go on for a day. This is a 33 slide presentation I've got here. <laughs> Well, tell us, please, Rebecca, is there anything else you would like to share that is on the slide? The really big one is that this is what the clinician can do. The clinician can engage their their patients and their clients in shared decision making. Because when you do that, then you can tear down everything that's happening around you. You can at least figure out what's the most important thing for them. And you can address their needs that way. And you can know that you're doing that. And so um, starting every appointment with what are you here for? What are your expectations from this appointment and how can I meet them? And finishing the appointment with, did you get all of your questions answered today? Uh, Understand that care delivery is political and that you have to fight. So when we talk about the moral injuries that that occur, it's when when leadership listens, but they don't do anything. And so some of the challenges you work somewhere long enough, you're going to find problems no matter where you work. And that's why I want to be so careful about not talking bad or poorly about my employer because they just, they're, they're doing their best too, but they, they have so many departments and they, they need to start from a place of diversity, but they didn't. And so I see these challenges all throughout that impact marginalized populations because they didn't start from a place of diversity. So now we have to go in and try to fix it. And so understanding that care delivery is political. So we have to be able to reach out to our politicians, but we need our leaders reaching out to our politicians. We need ASHA fighting for us. And so we need to continue to push ASHA to fight for us. And then we need to collaborate for change. And so you you leave no stone unturned. I have, well, I recently sent a list of probably 12 things that I needed that I need fixed at work. I've made progress on one of them, but I continue to send the emails. I randomly mentioned our bathroom issue. And she was like, oh my gosh, I know exactly who you should contact. And that's how we started to make some progress. So just know there are change agents all around you, but you have to continue to to pick for them because you'll find them and you'll find some things that people care a lot more about, and then you'll find that person who doesn't care about that thing, but they do care about that. So. You just gotta kinda keep keep poking the bear. We do get exhausted, we do,
1: but it's so empowering when we are actually able to advocate and even just that small baby step of someone saying, oh, I know exactly who to contact. One thing that came to my mind, and I will always mention this book, is a book called Who Not How by Dan Sullivan, basically achieving bigger goals, right? So thinking about who can help me with this problem rather than how, Because even the book outlines how we get so burned down by the how. It's just like, well, I don't know how I'm about to get this paperwork done within a week. Or I don't know how, how, how. But it's a matter of who can push the needle forward. So a lot of that is actually putting pressure on Asha. I know it is actually very hard because it's not like we're not doing it. But like you said, leave no stone unturned. It's important. And I think that what you're saying, Rebecca, empowers us as individuals to just keep doing the work. And sadly, we didn't come into this profession to help the profession, but to help the people who were serving. But it's just kind of as part of the community, it's part of the culture. So thank you so much. Please- thank you
0: for letting me talk about something I feel so passionate about. <laughs>
1: No, I wish I can have you
0: on here longer. Is
1: there one thing that you would like to leave people here with, with everything you just said in a
0: nutshell? You know, I would say that it's it's easy to want to walk away and there's nothing wrong with walking away. Um, and if that's something that you need to do, then do it. I um, know that you're leaving behind people who are continuing to fight for you. But, you know, for those who are kind of on that edge, Asha had 10% of people are considering professional abandonment right now. Um, if you're on that edge, but just know that there's a community, try to find opportunity to collaborate, feel free to reach out to me, but it's a systemic problem that you're stuck in and it really demands systemic change. And that's not on us as professionals to fix that. Um, all we can do is our best. And I just love my SLP community. <laughs> we love you, Rebecca. We love you. Uh,
1: Where will people find you if they want to reach out to you, ask you any more questions about this, and even check into gender affirming voice because that is another cultural competency
0: topic that we need to know more about. Yeah, um, I'm at gender affirming voice on Instagram. Uh, My email address is rebecca at affirmingvoice.com, and feel free to reach out to me about anything.
1: Thank you, thank you all, everybody, for coming for watching this video. If you are watching after the fact, please continue to do your research on moral injury versus burnout reach out to rebecca if you have any questions concerns especially on the advocacy end because rebecca you are a rock star when it comes to advocacy i just gotta give my hats off to you so thank you all so much and happy saturday Well, family, that's the episode. What did you think? Wherever you're listening, I'd appreciate if you left a review. Your feedback means a lot to me and helps me find more ways to help you on your journeys. If you're looking for more ways to expand your cultural compatibility in your clinical practices, follow me on Instagram at Pediatric Speech Sister and check out my newsletter for more show updates. I'll include all these links in the show notes. Until then, I'll see you next week.